We are diving into a new series today in the book of Habakkuk. And if you're like, Habakkuk what? He's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. What a minor prophet is, it's not someone that's less important, but it's books that are shorter. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And if you're wondering why would we do that, um, I'll tell you why. Um, It's because there are lots of questions in life we don't know the answer to, correct? Lots of questions, lots of things we see and we're like, what? I I don't get it. Um, Seems like the older you are, the more you realize that, right? I I drive my wife crazy because she'll ask me a question and I'm just like, "I, I don't know. And then she'll like, ask me another question. I'm like, I don't know. She's like, you used to have all the answers. Uh, why don't you have any answers anymore? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> now, in her defense, a lot of times I'm probably just being a little lazy because that kind of happens when we, uh, as we get older too, right? Um, but, you know, it's true. There's, <laughs> there are a lot of questions we just don't have the answer to in life, aren't there? And Habakkuk... This prophet, he's going to start his little three-chapter book. This is only a three-chapter book. We're going to be in it for maybe four to six weeks. We're still figuring that out. But he's going to start out by asking some of the big questions, some of the questions that, there's not, that we don't have good answers to, some of the things that's just bothering him and, and causing him angst in his life. Check this out. Habakkuk. One. And if you have a paper Bible and you want to find it, uh, go to Matthew and turn left a few, chap- or a few books. That'll be your easiest way to find it, okay? Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophecy or the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now listen to this and, and tell me if maybe sometimes you've wondered some of these things. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? God, it seems like I pray and the words come out of my mouth and they just fall on the floor. Anybody identify? Um, Or cry out to you, violence. This is wrong, right? Violence, but you do not save. Like, where are you, God? Where are you? Why are you letting this happen? Verse 3, Why do you make me look at injustice? There's just so much injustice all around. So many things that shouldn't be, right? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Why does it seem like the powerful people get away with whatever they want, and the little guy, not so much. Anybody identify with those? His intro, intro verses? Yeah. These are hard questions. Anybody have the answers? These are hard questions, aren't they? Like, why? Why, God? Why does it seem like when I pray, nothing happens, and yet I know I'm supposed to pray? Why does it seem like when I look at the world, just, it's just not fair? Why does it seem like you're not fair, God? In fact, Habakkuk's name, Habakkuk, it means to embrace or to wrestle. Like to embrace something difficult or to, or to wrestle. 
And I think his name is so fitting because he's going to wrestle with God over some really tough issues, some really tough things that he's seeing. And he's going to go, why, God? Why? Anybody have a toddler or uh, <laughs> that went why all the time, right? My kids are a little older. They've kind of outgrown that. Now they're approaching, my, my son's approaching teen years. Now he doesn't ask why anymore because he knows everything, right? <laughs> but yeah, why, 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 right? And, and honestly, there's this thing inside of us that as we look at life, as we look at circumstances, we just go, why, God? I don't get it. And there's three major areas that Habakkuk wrestles with God, and I think there's three things that we can really identify with that you see just in these very, the, the very start of his book. And really, these will be themes throughout this book that he's going to wrestle with. And that's that God just doesn't seem to care. I believe, God, you're there, and I know you're, you're powerful. I know you're in control. I know you, but, but you just don't seem to care when you look at what's going on around me, when you look at the circumstances in my life, in the life of people that love you. What's up with that? You just don't seem to care, right? Or God could act, but he's not acting. Like, God, I know you could do something about this, but you're not. What's up with that? Or God just doesn't seem fair. God, the way, what you're doing just doesn't seem fair. And I think these are questions we all can tend to wrestle with. Now, to kind of bring that forward a couple thousand years into our day and age, um, I think these are some of the, the ways we wrestle with this, right? Why, why I try so hard to be honest and hardworking, and yet the jerk who cheats and cuts corners at work, he gets promoted. What's up with that, right? Why does the person who doesn't even believe in God and smokes a pack a day live until they're 102, and yet the 40-year-old mom with, with kids dies of cancer? just doesn't seem right, God. Why is it we tried so hard to raise our kids in God's Word? I mean, we had them in church every Wednesday, every Sunday, and yet this other family, they barely even like talked about God. Their kids are grew up, they're serving God. Mine are just off the rails. Why is that? Why is that? I have an extended relative, and her and her husband just try... I mean, prayed and prayed to have kids and tried to have kids. Finally, they decided um, we're going to foster and we're going to adopt. But, um, and, and the mom, the drug addict mom and one of the kids they fostered, every t she just sleeps around all the time. Kid after kid after kid. It's, what's up with that? Or how many of you have a friend that, you know, everybody has a friend that just seems like they're so much more connected and close to God than you are, and God answers the silliest little prayers that they have. Like, they're like, I was running late for work, and I've got to have my latte. And I knew, like, this time of day, Starbucks, there's always, like, 20 cars, and I pulled up, and there were no cars in line. I prayed, and God answered my prayer. You're like, seriously? I'm praying about actual stuff here. And it seems like God just doesn't even hear me, right? Or on more, maybe more of a philosophical level. In fact, maybe some of you are just, you know, you're, you consider yourself an agnostic or an atheist, and you're just kind of like checking this out. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're investigating God. But maybe, maybe the thing for you, and, and you struggle with this, and I guarantee you if you ever engage 
an atheist in conversation, this will be one like in the first five minutes, this will probably come up, right? And that's this. If there's a good God, why is there suffering and injustice in this world? That's a hard one, isn't it? That stumps a lot of us, doesn't it? And ultimately, I mean, behind all these questions are these kind of deeper questions, right? God, why is it that God doesn't seem to care so often? Why, why do we know that God could act, but he's not acting? And why doesn't God seem fair? And here's what usually happens to people when they, when they bump up against these questions and come, in, come into circumstances in their life where it's like, I can't explain this stuff, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure. Usually people react in, uh, in two predominant ways. One is they lower the bar of their expectation of God in order not to be disappointed. So instead of expecting a close relationship with God, they just kind of figure, God, you're, you're out there and I'll throw some prayers up, but I don't really have any expectations of you, God. You know, I'm hoping for heaven and whatever. And I call this, uh, the term I use for this is practical deism or functional deism. What deism is, fancy word, basically is a deist believes that God kind of, there's a creator, a great creator, but he kind of just wound up the universe and sort of sent it off on its own. He doesn't really interfere in the activities of, of mankind. And for many Christians, what, what happens to them in life is because of disappointments, is because they can't answer these questions or they can't reconcile these things. Basically, they turn into a, a functional deist. That theologically, they know there's a God who acts in humanity, but practically, the way you live and what you expect of God just kind of ratchets down. And you don't really have any expectation that God is going to be active in your life. The other result for many people is they just conclude that God must not be there. And I'm telling you, so many people, it's very rare for somebody to just wake up one morning or go to one college class and kind of philosophically decide, I just don't think there's a God. Typically what happens is people run into disappointment in life. And they're disillusioned. And that disillusionment leads them to start doubting God. And pretty soon they detach. And before you know it, they walk away. That's usually what happens in people's lives. And so the prophet Habakkuk is going to deal with some of these big questions, some of these hard questions. He's going to ask God. He's going to get actually some answers that are much better than the questions. As he goes along, he's going to find out there's some hard answers coming. But in the end, and here's the beautiful thing. In the end, he's going to come to a beautiful place of trust in God and in God's greater plan and God's greater purpose. And he's going to find a peace in that. And I believe that's what you want to experience in your life, don't you? I want to experience that in my life. And so to understand the questions that Habakkuk is answering and why he is so filled with angst right at the beginning of his little book here. Because to understand it, you got to kind of go back to the beginning of the story and understand what's happening. And so I'm going to pick up where we left off last November. If you weren't with us last November, um, good share of last year, we preached through the book of Exodus. And where we, where we left the people of God was basically they had the choice to go into the promised land, but but fear held them back. They didn't trust God. And so they ended up 
doing laps in the desert for 40 years until that whole generation of Israelites um, dies off and their children are the ones who with Joshua will go into the promised land. And during this time, right at the very end, um, you have the first five books of the Bible known as the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. That's the Hebrew names, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's also known as the law. When you hear about the law, that's also known as the law, the first five books of the Bible. And so in this, at the very end of this 40-year journey, what Moses is going to do is he's going to uh, pen the book of Deuteronomy. But basically what Deuteronomy is is a giant speech that he gives to the people of God, the people of Israel, before they go into the promised land, about just trying to remind them of everything they've been through and of the most important things they need to remember because they're the people of God. And so the, one of the big things he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is the, one of the most important things. This is a prayer that even, even today, um, Orthodox Jewish people pray twice a day. It's called the Shema. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Like the biggest thing you got to remember is love God. And, and, and have no other gods. I mean, he is one. There is only one of him like him. He's the creator of everything. He's the only one worth serving. So love him. Love him. And then he goes on later in chapter 6 to say, I, I want this whole, remember the Ten Commandments? We went over that. The Book of the Covenant. This, the law of God. Moses is going to tell him, here's what I want you to do. This is vital. You don't miss this. I want you to teach it to your kids. I want you to um, remind your kids of this over and over and over again. That you talk about it on the way to the soccer field and at breakfast as they're rushing off to school. You're talking about God and the things of God and, and the principles of God. That this is a major part of your life. You, you know, when you're working, whenever you have a spare minute, Talk about it. Remind your kids. Why? Because if not, generations slip away quickly and forsake God. And this is such a vital thing. We talk about this um, frequently and remind you of this, that the church is here, if you're a parent or a grandparent, the church is here to help you disciple your kids towards Jesus. Now, it's I mean, it's so important. You get them here, right? They're around people that love Jesus. They're being taught in Sunday school and at youth group and these different um, you know, venues that we have, that they're around this environment. It's so important, the consistency. But guess what? Even if we get them you know, an hour out of the week, basically, it's only one, one 168th of the week. You need to be pouring into your kids. You need to be talking with them. Spiritual conversations, conversations about what God has done, about the principles of God need to be a regular part of breakfast, lunch, dinner, commutes, all that. It's vital, right? And so he reminds them of this. And then he tells them, hey, when God brings you into the promised land, he's going to bless your socks off. You're going to be incredibly blessed. But when that happens, don't forget God. Don't start thinking that Look what I did. I'm pretty, I'm all that, right? No, remember, it's God who's blessed you. It's God who's given you the gifts, the talents, and the abilities to accomplish what you've, what you've been given. It's God that's placed you in a nation where you can succeed, where you can prosper, where you have things, right? Don't forget God. 
And so the whole book of Deuteronomy, he goes on like this and on like this, reminding them of everything that God told them and everything that God wants to impress upon their hearts. And then at the very end of the book, in Deuteronomy 30, here's here's what Moses says, and he's going to give them a warning here, a commission and a warning. Here's what he says. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. In other words, you get to choose which way you walk in. For I command you today to love the Lord your God. There it is, love God. You have to love God. See, these things aren't just going to happen if you just decide I'm going to grit my teeth and serve God. No, you have to, there there needs to be a love in your heart for God. Otherwise, this isn't going to work out, right? To love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. The Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But listen, here's the warning. 17, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you certainly will be destroyed. Here's the warning. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. In other words, God says, some of you have said this to your kids, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. God's reminding you, God gives them a commission or promise and basically promises them that if you enter this land and you just go after all the nations because their, their job, their corporate job as a nation is to be a light to the other nations that are into all sorts of idolatry and detestable practices to God that we can barely imagine here in, in uh, what is the year? 2021. We can barely even imagine the, this kind of culture, Right? Their job's to be a light. And he says, hey, if you serve God, you're going to be incredibly blessed. But if you don't, there's going to be a time and God will actually remove you from the land that he brings you into. And then in the next chapter, (laughs) I think this is kind of fun. Uh, This is a little sad. If you were with us through the whole book of Exodus, you know, and we watched all the struggles that Moses went through as a leader and all these things, um, at the very end of his journey, how would you like to lead a stubborn people for 40 years in laps around the wilderness? And then at the very end, God's like, boy! here's what's going to happen. 31.15, then the Lord appeared at the tent, the pillar of the cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors. You're going to die. And these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering they will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? You just gave your life to lead these people, and they're going to go into the land and abandon everything you just told them. I'm sure this wasn't like, woohoo, right? <laughs> I'm talking about a letdown, right? But see, this is God knows, right? Because God sees the scope and the timeline of history. He knows that this people, their their hearts hadn't hadn't turned to him. Their hearts had not followed him. In fact, in the midst of this, there there is a promise, though, and, and I like this. Because in the midst of this, like, downer moment with Moses, um, God reveals something to Moses that's so profound that the people are going to fail, the people are going to abandon me, they will 
be taken from the land. Check out what, what Moses says here in, in chapter 30, verse 1. He says, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. In other words, um, I, I know you're not going to follow this. You're going to abandon this, right? And when your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then, listen, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. From there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Listen, then the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. There will be a mark, just like for the people of Israel, there's a mark on the flesh. He says there's going to be a mark. He's going to change your hearts. This is something only God can pull off, only God can do, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And so right at the very beginning of the story, in the midst of God saying, hey, what's about ready to happen here is my people are going to go to the promised land. They're going to abandon me. I know this is going to happen. They're going to have this real spotty history of following me for a while and then going after idols and then following me and then longer going after idols. Eventually, I'll bring them into exile. But even in the midst of that, Moses looks forward through the, through the inspiration of God to this time in history where God will change hearts, where he'll draw hearts to himself, where there'll be a day where God will actually do the work in the hearts so that the, his people can follow him and experience what he has for them. It's been God's agenda all along. This is a thousand years almost before Habakkuk writes. So that gives you the, the idea, the promise that was given to the people of Israel. Now flash forward 900 years. Israel has become a superpower status under David, had become. Under David and Solomon, um, they were a regional superpower. Solomon builds, a, you know, David conquers all the, uh, the enemies that surround them. Uh, they become a great kingdom. This is about 400 years before Habakkuk writes. They become a great kingdom, and under Solomon, the, the people of God, man, the kingdom just expands. There's all these leaders, Queen, Queen Sheba from Egypt. They're all pouring into Jerusalem because this nation is so incredibly wealthy and blessed. Solomon is so wise. He's the smartest guy that ever lived. And it looks like everything is set for success. And then Solomon, the smartest guy that ever lived, does one of the dumbest things that anyone can imagine. He marries 700 women and takes 300 concubines. See, God had warned kings all the way back in the first five books of the Bible, don't do that because they'll draw your hearts away, kings. And Solomon, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm too smart. I, have you seen me? won't happen to me. It does. That's a very good lesson to remember. And I've said this recently, but it's so important. Remember, you're more vulnerable in your success than you are when you're struggling. When you, when you, when you find success, be cautious, because those are the moments your heart will be tempted to be drawn away from God, more than the times where you're like, God, I need you, I need you, I need you, right? So Solomon thinks he's, he's above that and he compromises. He, he actually raises up 
altars on the hillsides to these false gods that his, his foreign wives ask him to do. He compromises, and after that, the kingdom splits. The kingdom splits, and the, the northern kingdom, Israel, is made up of ten tribes, and then the two tribes make up the southern kingdom of Judah, or Judea. And there's these two warring factions of the nation. And the northern kingdom just goes off the rails for a period of a couple hundred years. They don't last very long. For a period of a couple hundred years, they just have evil king after evil king after evil king. They go into detestable idolatry. They set up altars to the Baals, which were false idol gods. They do all these awful practices, sacrificing their children, all these things that we can barely even imagine. And before you know it, Assyria comes and hauls them off into exile. The ten tribes. Wipes out the land. Now you have the southern kingdom of Judah left. Judah has a few more bright spots in it. They have a few more righteous kings who return Judah to the worship of the one true God. They have the temple actually in Jerusalem there. So that's helpful. They, they worship God. But then a whole string of evil kings comes along and draws their hearts away. And before you know it, they're into idolatry. Just this pattern, right? Doing good, bad, 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 evil, evil. Doing good, bright spot, evil, evil. And so about the time that a little while before Habakkuk lives, there's this king named Hezekiah, and he's kind of a bright spot. He's kind of patchy. He, he does some really dumb things, but he does draw the nation back to God. And his son then becomes king. His, his son's name is Manasseh. And here's what Chronicles says about Manasseh in the time period right before Habakkuk writes. It says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places, the false idol worship places on the hillside, right, that his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. These are false idol gods that they would bow down and worship. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. Astrology, right? He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. Now, what you have to understand is this is shocking to the people that love God and that are committed to serving God. Like, if you read this, in the time when Jesus was, like the people that love God during the time, this is just unimaginable, right? I mean, this would be like if you came through the doors and we decided we were going to set idols up all over and have like basically satanic rituals, right? I mean, as unimaginable as that is, this is, this is what this is in this culture. And it's detestable to God. In the very altar, the very temple, where he said, this is the place where my name, my authority, my presence will be, they set up false idols and do things that never should be done. And they do them in the name of worship. It's, it's detestable, right? It says this in verse 5, In both the courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hanam, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Imagine that. 
Imagine being a child growing up, one of the kids of Manasseh, never knowing you hear the drums start beating early in the morning before dawn in the valley of Hinnom, a couple of miles away, the sound and the smoke going up, and you don't know if they're going to come and take you and sacrifice you that day. That is the environment his kids grew up in. Can you imagine that? It's crazy. It says in verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the people of Israel, uh, people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord has destroyed before the Israelites. In other words, God says, when I bring you into the promised land, these nations are so evil, so corrupt, the, the things they're doing are so awful, they need to be driven out of the land, right? And then he's like, you're, you're worse. You're worse than the nations I sent you in there for. And so God makes a proclamation about Judah. He sends a prophet to say, here's what's going to happen to this nation. Because of the place this nation has gone, they're no longer a light. They're worse than the nations that were here before. They've completely abandoned me. They're doing things that never should be done. It says this in 2 Kings 21.10, And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. You won't believe this. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. You've heard of Ahab, and you've heard of Ahab's evil wife, whose name is what? Jezebel, which you named your cat after, <laughs> not your dog. Sorry. For those of you new to the church, we have kind of a spotty history with cats around here and cat examples. I, we had a cat. It adopted us. After me laying down the law that we would never have a cat. <clears throat> and then last summer that cat disappeared. I didn't tell you because it was kind of sad. But So if you've noticed, there have been no cat illustrations. Well, this week we got a cat. Um, now, I've laid down the law. It is going to be an outdoor cat. So I will report back to you and let you know how that all goes. <laughs> Let's just say it's not going so well so far. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, Ahab, Ahab, and Jezebel, the evil. Evil, I mean, so evil, you, none of you named your children that, I'm sure, right? I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. In other words, God's promise is, hey, look, everything I promised back in Deuteronomy to Moses, that if you abandon me, and go after these other gods. He uses the term and prostitute yourselves after these other gods. I'm going to remove you from the land. It was a promise God made. We like the good promises, right? I'll never leave you. I love that promise. That's an amazing promise. His presence is the greatest promise, right? One of God's promises to his people was, if you do this, you will be removed from the land. Guess what? God keeps his promises. So he says, this is coming. It's happening. It's going to happen. And so... Manasseh dies, and his son Amon takes over the throne. And listen, his son is so wicked that his own officials conspired against him and killed him and put his eight-year-old son 
in the kingship instead of him. That was one bad dude. You are so lousy, we'll take your eight-year-old son. I've had an eight-year-old son a few years ago, right? You don't want him ruling a kingdom, do you? But this eight-year-old boy is named Josiah, and here's what's amazing about him. Somebody, somebody got to Josiah. We don't know if it was his mom or his, his nurse or his grandma, but somebody got a hold of him and told him about the one true God. We know it wasn't dad. Dad was evil. Somebody got a hold of him, and he learned about the one true God, and his heart began to love the one true God. And Josiah, some of you know someone named Josiah. That's because this dude was a stellar dude. So 3,000 years later, we're naming kids after him, right? Josiah, here's what it says about him in 2 Chronicles 34. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. I mean, okay, so he's about 16, and it says he began to love God, go after God. He began to serve and seek God. And this is so powerful. While he was still young. You know what? This is why at Life Community Church, we place such a huge emphasis on kids and youth and young adults. Kids and youth is because um, most kids, when they make a decision to follow God, they're going to do it as a, as a child or as a young as a youth. Most kids that fall in love with God and follow him. Now, we pray for people and seek people and reach out and, you know, my circle, my responsibility, reach people beyond that. And God reaches people that are grown up too. But let me just tell you, the best opportunity you have as a parent, as a grandparent, is to pour into your kids at a young age and help them find and love the God of the universe. That's why it's such a huge priority for us here. That's why you see so many kids and youth around here. Because we're passionate about reaching kids and youth for the gospel. And seeing young people discipled to love God and serve him, right? And Josiah loves God and, and serves God. And as he's doing this, he, he, he goes on. So at about the age 20, he starts removing all the all the idolatry he can from the land. And then they began to restore the temple too, which had fallen into disrepair. People were like, ah, temple of God, doesn't really matter, right? It was one of the seven wonders of the world. They've just sort of let it fall into disrepair over the past few hundred years since Solomon, right? And so he begins to pour resources in and restore this so that the worship of God is happening in purity in the temple and it's, and it's honored, right? And during this process, something amazing happens. It says this in 2 Chronicles 34, 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. Now, here's what this is. This is the Torah. This is Genesis through Deuteronomy. And this just blows my mind that at some point they so disregarded God and the very word of God that they just tossed his word in the corner. And as they're pouring resources into the temple, somebody's like, hey, what's that over there in the corner? There's a scroll. It's over there. It's just covered in dust. And they go and they pick it up and they're like, whoa, 
This is the law of God. We haven't seen this in ages. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? I mean, that would be like us just doing like social club here, right? And I don't know, me reading and doing a stand-up comedy routine. And completely abandoning the word of God. And then somebody goes, wait, uh, there's a Bible. And we're like, oh, a Bible. We haven't seen that in 100 years. Let me just tell you, this is really a sobering thought because no one thinks that what they know will be forgotten. But you know, history shows us that within two generations, typically, people can completely abandon what the values of their family, the values of their nation, the values and faith of their forefathers. It starts with, with one generation just kind of taking it for granted. And church is just sort of a thing that, you know, we got time you know, we don't have other things better to do on the weekend. Yeah, we'll kind of go. And then the next generation, it's just not a priority. As a general rule, if you don't make something a priority, your kids will see it as even less of a priority. And they abandon the Word of God, and it's just, they find it dusty, rolled up in the corner, and they take it, and they bring it to the king. And it says this, 2 Chronicles 34, 18, Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When he heard the words of the law, he tore his robes, a sign of horror and mourning, of repentance before God. He hears, as he hears the words of the Lord. Now, imagine this, because this is the first time. We don't know how much he knows about God, but he knows enough maybe through tradition or whatever, um, he knows enough to know about who God is and that he's the one true God, but he doesn't know what's basically the constitution and their Bible, the constitution of their nation, right? Imagine that. He doesn't know it. And so as he's reading this thing, as he's, as he's reading this text, his eyes are like, oh my goodness. He hears the scripture that Moses says, if you do this, guess what's happening to the nation? And he freaks out. He's like, we're toast. Do you know what my granddaddy did? We're dead. And so he sends to seek the prophets because there's still communities of prophets around people that would hear from God. And he sends to seek the prophets because he's terrified at this point, right? Right? And here's what the prophet says to him. Um, actually, there's a woman prophet that hears from God in a powerful way, and she, this prophet named Huldah, sends this word to Josiah the king. 2 Chronicles 34, 23. She said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. Remember the prophecy before to his granddad? Guess what? Because of what the granddad did, and the people followed into this awful sin. I'm going to remove you from the land, right? I am going to do what I promised, God says. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Remember what Moses talked about all the way back there. Guess what? You guys have blown it big time. This is what the Lord, uh, verse 26, tell the king of Judah who you sent to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the words you heard. This is so powerful. Don't miss this. Because your heart was responsive 
And you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. Now, I think this is so powerful. So basically what God is saying to Josiah is, nope, the promise was you guys abandon this and this happens. And after repeated, repeated offense, I said, it's coming. Get ready. I'm going to keep my promise I made almost 1,000 years ago, 900 some years ago, right? I'm going to keep my promise and you're going to be removed from this land and hauled off into exile. I'm going to send you into a giant timeout. It's coming. Prepare yourself. But, and this is so powerful, because as Josiah comes before, because of his heart and his response to the Lord, there's a generation in there that gets to experience a breath of refreshing and peace. There's a delay. God delays somehow in, in and I don't understand all this either, but in God's sovereignty, as he, as he moves the nations and the kingdoms of the world, it all is going to work out right that this generation gets a respite, a delay, peace in the midst of judgment. Sometimes God's delays are actually his mercy. Sometimes his delays are his mercy, and that's what you're seeing here. And it's this incredible period. So what happens is Josiah takes this book of the law, he reads it before all the people, and now the people... Remember, we talked about the Book of the Covenant back in our Exodus series. He reads this before the people, and the people commit to obeying God. And there is a period of spiritual renaissance, a revival that hits the nation of Israel. It's a beautiful time. And during that time, God draws many to himself. He draws the hearts of many, many people. In fact, I believe that the hearts of some of the young people that he draws during this time because of Josiah, it won't be very long after Josiah when actually they will be removed and taken into exile. But you, you know what God did during exile? He always had a remnant of people whose hearts were faithful to him. And it was that remnant that would come back into the land and prepare the way for Messiah. And I think that happened during this time. And that's why it's so important what your choices today, in spite of like the big global, national, geopolitical things that we just feel powerless to do anything about, right? In spite of that, your decision to go after God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength today can impact not just you, but a whole generation. The ripples can go forth to draw many, many hearts that's why reaching out to those around you in loving God and going after him, it's one of the most vital things you can do. And Josiah does that. And it's this amazing, amazing age in Israel. As God draws hearts to himself. But guess what? It doesn't last all that long. Because Josiah reigns for 38 years. That means he's 39 years old when he dies. Here's how it's described to us in 2 Kings 23, 29. When Josiah, while Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, 
all these big geopolitical things. Judea's like small, you know, Judea's, I don't know, like Connecticut or something, right? It's not like don't mess with Texas. It's like Connecticut. Nobody's really worried about Connecticut. And Pharaoh from Egypt, Pharaoh Nico says, I'm going to take my army through. And Josiah comes out to fight against him because he doesn't want to let him through, which uh, actually seems to be a mistake when you read the scripture. Verse 29 says, while Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria, a kingdom, a nation that had hauled off the 10 northern tribes, and now they were in big hot water themselves because Babylon was growing in power. See, nations come, nations go, kingdom rise, kingdom falls. God's story goes on, right? So Pharaoh comes up. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed him at Megiddo. Isn't it interesting when you read Scripture how you, you can have an amazing life of service to God, and then in one sentence, Scripture de- describes what happens. You die. And guess what? God's story goes on. And, and that's the truth. That's the truth. And if you lose sight of that, that is as wrapped up as we get in our lives, guess what? Our lives are only a small part of the larger story of what God is doing. He's drawing hearts to himself. And Josiah played a vital role in the story. And yet, when his time was done, he's gone. And God's story rolls on. And what happens over the next 20 years, what happens is, it all goes back downhill. There was such, oh, it was such an amazing time. Josiah and the revival, it was amazing. It would have been amazing to be part of that, right? Josiah dies, a couple other awful kings come along, and before you know it, the, the country's back in idolatry. Babylon is being raised up to come against them. And it's during this period, Habakkuk, he sees, oh, we had so much, like there was this amazing period, and now. It all came to naught. It all came to naught. And during that time, Habakkuk cries out, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Where are you, God? He wrestles with God. And can you imagine his heart of disappointment after seeing what God had done and now seeing it all come to nothing and, and wondering, God, where are you in this? Where are you? It just seems like, God, you don't care. Seems like you could act, you could do something, about it, but you're not. God, it just doesn't seem like you're fair. And maybe that's where you're at here this morning. You're like, I was doing so good, and now I'm struggling with this again. And I had like a, a year I was doing great, and, and I, don't, I don't get it, God. Maybe uh, you're like, we were just getting all our finances together, and then this unexpected medical thing happened. I was just making progress on riding my bike, and then I broke my leg. That was me last year, right? What, what's happening with that? How does that make sense, God? You know, the beautiful thing about David, I think we can identify with, he's a deeply flawed person, and yet God uses him. And he wrestles with God. In fact, a whole bunch of the Psalms, as you read them, are him crying out, Why, God? I don't get it, God. Why? But he always comes back to trust 
in God. And this is what we're going to see in the life of Habakkuk. As we continue in this book, God is going to answer Habakkuk. Habakkuk is not going to like all of the answers that God gives him. But God is going to assure him, you know, in fact, I am working behind the scenes. Those who do wicked will not prevail. Like, there will be a day of judgment. The wicked will not overcome. There is a final word. I have a plan. I have a purpose. I am drawing hearts to myself, and there will be a day when you're going to see that like none other. And God will call his memory back to the bigger purposes that that Moses talked about, that there's going to be a day when I'm going to draw hearts and I'm going to give the ability to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. In fact, Habakkuk's contemporaries, Jeremiah and Isaiah um, or Ezekiel, both talk about this, about the time when he says, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And Jeremiah, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am their Lord. There's a new covenant coming. It's pointing to that. My purposes will be fulfilled. Habakkuk, just got to hang on. That's what we're going to see as we go through this book. That God is at work and God is drawing hearts. And sometimes when you don't see him working, his delay is actually mercy. Peter puts it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, guess what? We've been promised, a promise of God. You can put it in the bank. You can count on it. Jesus says, I'm coming back. And guess what? There will be a time when everyone will stand before the judge, the just, righteous judge. Nobody gets away with anything. God sees all. Nothing escapes his notice. And in that day, in that day, the question will be, have you placed your full faith and trust in Jesus? Have the things you've done been covered by the blood of Jesus? Have you trusted in the work that he did at the cross? Are you saved? Are you redeemed? He's coming. He keeps his promises. And in the midst of a world that we look at and we're like, God, I have more questions than I have answers. Let me just say, some of you are at a place you need to keep wrestling with God. You're at that place where you feel your heart drifting towards, I'm just ratcheting down. I'm just going to step back. I'm going to sort of disconnect and, and put a wall in my heart from God because it's just painful. No, no. Do the Habakkuk. Keep wrestling, embracing God, going, God, I don't get it. I don't get it, but I want to trust you. I don't get it, but I want to draw near to you. I don't get it, Lord, do a work in my heart. Draw my heart to you. Evil and justice will not have the last word. There will be a day when he returns, but until then, guess what? There's a lot of questions we don't have the answers to. Wrestle with him. Embrace him. And don't miss what he's doing in the midst of all this. He's drawing hearts to himself. You get to decide whether you want to be part of that, whether you're going to open your heart to him and allow yourself to be drawn to him, and whether your life is going to be used to draw others to him. Would you stand? If any in the room are joining us online here today, um, you feel God drawing you, and, and you know it if that's you. 
I just want to invite you to, uh, to respond with, with a prayer, something like this. Lord Jesus, I trust you. I believe you're the Son of God, that you died and rose again. I ask for your forgiveness, for your grace, for your mercy. I want to be saved, Lord. Save me. I turn my life to you. I want to follow you. Lord, for all my other friends here, um, I just ask that you would just encourage their hearts here. In the midst of having a bunch of questions, um, Lord, if all they get from this is, is keep wrestling with God, don't disconnect. Don't detach. Keep wrestling with God. Pray your grace over their hearts that you would draw them and that their lives would be used during this time to draw others to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.